You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Have you ever realized that there was information that you should have had, that you thought maybe you had, but you didn't have? You know, as you're growing up as a young adult, you're like, I should know how to do that, and I don't know how to do that. It's interesting what we think we know, but we don't know until the buttons are pushed and we realize, yeah, we never learned that. Which is one of the reasons why we are diving into the Ten Commandments. Because these are things we should know, but we don't know them as well as we think we do. Put, to put it in perspective, 74% of Americans know who the Three Stooges are. Who are they? Larry Moe and Curly. Ray jumped on that. It was like he's been waiting for somebody to ask that question. It was like an unusual amount of enthusiasm for the Stooges. Okay. Some of you thought it was Danny, Randy, and Walesa, but no, it's not. It's Larry Moe and Curly. All right, 35% of Americans can name all of the Brady kids. Can you do that? Come on, top to bottom. Greg? Marsha? We already got Greg. Greg, Marsha, Peter, Jan, Bobby, and Cindy. Anybody know the dog's name? Tiger. I'm impressed. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you're among like 35%. That's fairly elite. It's kind of a weird thing to be elite about, but congratulations. 25% of Americans can name all seven ingredients in a Big Mac. And I knew it would be somebody about my age because that used to be like the ad, the advertisement for a Big Mac where they would tell you what was in a Big Mac and that worked. Think about it. Now people look at diet completely differently. If they told you what was in a Big Mac, that would not work. But it worked for people of our age. But in light of all that, only 14% of Americans know all of the Ten Commandments and... 60% of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments. 65% can't come up with, or 60% can't come up with five? You'd think you could guess five. Now, why, you think about why Ten Commandments? Why did this even come to be? There is a design principle in architecture, in art, in organization. It says, it's called KISS. Keep it. Simple, stupid, or keep it stupid, simple, whatever. Keep it things basic. You know, and we like things one, two, three. Wouldn't it be great if we had just ten simple rules to follow? Well, as it turns out, we do. If you want sermon notes, by the way, there's a code back there. I can't imagine all of you are taking my picture at one time. I just saw, like, a bunch of cameras go up, and I'm like, wanted to, wanted to look good for the gram, and turns out you're just getting the notes. All right, yeah, that's what... Some of you were afraid to get the notes because you thought it was a trick that took you to the giving page. Not that I would ever do that. Would it help if I moved? Okay. All right. That'll that'll take you to notes, and it will give you hope that at some point we will end. Uh, So these Ten Commandments, they're they're simple, but, but they're not. They're nuanced, more so than we realize they are. Every group of people through history has had a certain number of foundational documents, things that just uh, make a foundation of who they are. 
These are written works on which our beliefs and our society and our culture, even our nation and our legal systems, exist based on. These documents provide a foundation for who we are. In the U.S., of course, we've got a Declaration of Independence. We've got a U.S. Constitution. We have things that make us who we are. From the U.S. Constitution and the times that it has been amended, we get what it means to be an American. We get the rights that we have and we get the responsibilities that we have based on those documents. Those documents mean absolutely nothing to a Norwegian or an Afghani or a Korean in their respective countries. If you go into another nation, where, where's Reverend Varapuz? Where's Sarah? Is she here? Okay. If you go to India and you make a rousing speech about, you know, we the people, they don't care. Right? Is, yeah, you the people. In order to make a more perfect union, yeah, what are you talking If you go to anywhere else other than America, I mean, they don't care. But to an American, it's core of who you are as a, as a legal individual. Those are foundational documents. Tells us what we can expect from our government, what they can expect from us. But outside of our little world, nobody gives a rip. There are, however, foundational documents that actually transcend nations by describing behaviors that are allowed and are not allowed. This is not the constitution of a nation or the bylaws of an organization. This is something that every nation and organization and individual is held to. The Ten Commandments are our constitution of behavior and they do not stop at a border or selectively apply to a small group of people. These are for me, these are for you, and for everybody who's ever lived. And when they are implemented, they produce good fruit. And when they are ignored, comes death. It's hard to imagine being an American without a constitution. It is impossible to imagine being a Jew or a Christian without the Ten Commandments. They are that foundational. And in these ten, we find our ideas of right and wrong that bleed down into our legal system. We find particular behaviors that men and women try and fall short of, and we even, when we look at the whole of them, see our need for Jesus, because we look at them and go, uh, six, six out of ten, I'm not doing too bad, but four of them I'm wrestling with. So in this series, I want to look briefly at each, where they come from, but not just where they come from, but what they specifically are and what they mean. I am not content to teach these in a theoretical way. I'm not really into theoretical sermons at this point or things that only matter a million years from now. I want to dive into things that I can put to work right now and trust that it'll mean something a million years from now. But if your theology only matters a million years from now and doesn't work now, you really don't have a theology. So the Ten Commandments appear three different places in the Bible. If you've ever been reading the Bible and going, wait, I thought this already happened, and you're flipping back and forth, that's because you find them in several different places. Twice as intact whole lists, and once interspersed with other remarks. Exodus 31 finds Moses on the mountain while the people linger down at the base of the mountain. And God speaks to Moses about a lot of things, and he records two tablets with his own finger. Literally says, here, give me that. And he engraves these stone tablets. Exodus 31, verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, 
He gave Moses two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. If these had survived, these would have been the most valuable manuscripts of all time. I read recently of a Shakespearean manuscript that sold, it was 50 years after the time of Shakespeare, and it sold for $10 million dollars. Can you imagine if you had a copy of the Ten Commandments sold by, you know, like, and if you signed them, that'd be awesome, you know. What those, but as we know, mistakes were made. And it didn't work out that way. We don't have access to the original copies because, as the phrase goes, mistakes were made. And even the fact that they were inscribed by God didn't stop Moses from losing it when he goes back down the mountain. He goes down the mountain, Exodus 32, 19, and as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He's like, I've been up here fasting for 40 days, and you all have melted down the earrings for a cow? Like, why even a cow? Like, you could have made this anything. It wouldn't have made it any better, but a cow. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Well, that was unfortunate. So in Exodus 34, God recounts to him what was on the tablets, and this time, Moses records them. God says, you're going to write this down yourself. Exodus 34, 27, 28, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So with these written... A second time, dictated by God to Moses, in Deuteronomy, he calls all the people together to say, okay, we got close to this before, and I got down the mountain, and you all had made a, bro- a calf, and I had to break it. It kind of reminds him of all this, and then says, but here we go again. Deuteronomy 5.1, Moses called all Israel, said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments, which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. He's like... Okay, these have been written down two times, and I need you to listen. We're not sure what's going through Moses' mind, but he's got to be thinking about the last time they got this close, and everything went haywire. And in verse 5, he says, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid of the fire, and you didn't go up the mountain. He said, I've paid a price to get these, and you didn't pay the price, so you need to sit down and listen. With that reminder, he begins to teach the Ten Commandments to the people. So we're going to teach through these in the coming weeks, but just so we're not in that segment of people who know the ingredients of a Big Mac but don't know the Ten Commandments, every week we're going to read these together. Okay, just to, There's only ten of them. They're not that long. We're going to read an abbreviated version, and so we become familiar with these. Okay, So just to break it up, let's all stand, and uh, let's read through these. Together, I may stop you at some point. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven image. Stop for just a second. Some of you think that's redundant. You're like, that's like two in one. No, it's not. Those are very, very, very different. And we're going to talk about one this week and one next week. All right, back to work. You shall not take God's name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Stop. I'm just going to confess to you right now, that's the one that makes me nervous. I'm, 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 I'm honestly not kidding. I told Kelsey, 
I am under a significant num- amount of conviction about how we have ordered our lives and the level of busyness that I am feeling the pressure. I'm not talking about you. I'm t- this is not the greater we, okay? This is the... And, and I told Kelsey, I, I'm okay with don't kill. So far. But this one... I, I told her literally, I said, Kelsey, I'm under conviction about this. She said, good. I'm like, you're not being helpful. She goes, no, no. She goes, I, I, she goes honestly, I would feel, she goes, I would be worried if you were able to preach this without some level of conviction. So I'm just laying that one out there for you. Accountability goes both ways. And this is one that is wearing me out. All right, let's go. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder If that one made you nervous, please see me afterwards. (laughs) You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for these ten commandments. And we endeavor to hammer our lives into fitting what you called us to. Even back at the very beginning of the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's see. Okay, so commandment number one, like I said, in the, that was an abbreviated version. Some of these, these commandments have a little bit more context to them, and this is one that has more context to them. It utilizes what is called in storytelling or in comedy a callback. You know what a callback is? A callback is when you throw something out that references an earlier time. It's why a public speaker can tell a story at the beginning of a, of a speech Tell the whole speech and at the end say one word and you remember that story? That's a callback. And he utilizes a callback here in referencing something that happened and now it has more emphasis. Do you remember when you were 15 years old and your mother said, I brought you into this world? And that was a callback? Like whatever she was about to say next had more weight because... She brought you into this world. That's kind of what he does here. Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's not just throwing that out in the simplified version that we just read. He says, no, no, no. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, I'm not an uninvolved God. I'm not a God without investment in your life. I'm not an entity that you don't have any history with. God does a callback to the greatest deliverance story of their lives. Now, this room, I don't know all of you, I know a lot of you, but I can say this with full faith, even of those that I don't know who've been walking with the Lord. This is a room of epic stories. This is a room full of elements of deceit and intrigue and pain and regret and faithfulness and love, and it just runs the gamut. Hollywood on its best day cannot compete with the stories of everyday people trying to follow Jesus. All of you have episodes in your life where you were held captive. Maybe not to people, but to your own sin. And you were not able to get free on your own, and even if you could get better, you couldn't get free. 
The only way you found freedom is when you turn to Jesus with your whole heart. And Paul describes that moment just like God references this callback in this first commandment of I brought you out of Egypt. Paul describes what that moment was like for you in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He's like, there is a moment back in time where you were in bondage and now you're free. And of the first 10 commandments, the first one, God is intentionally invoking the moment of our freedom. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. I set you free from sin. You were, in, you were captive, now you're not. And now in light of the fact that you are no longer captive, you'll have no other gods before me. He's referencing, in their case, the escape from Egypt, a promise given from the Lord through Moses when they were backed up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army bearing down on them and Moses prophesies the word of the Lord to him in Exodus 14, 13. He says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which worked for you. Since you see today, you will never see again. It's in light of this freedom from bondage that he tells them, no other gods before me. I brought you into this world. And you have got to listen. And in this case, it worked. They faced other struggles later on, but they never faced this group of people that was coming down on them. Never happened again. They fought other battles, but God set them free from this group of people. The whole thing shifted there on the banks of the Red Sea, just like everything shifted for you when you came to Jesus. Yet they needed to be reminded of this Because God was about ready to draw a line in the sand and say, in light of what I have done for you, no other gods, just me. And we read that in 2024, and it's like a little insulting, isn't it? Other gods? (laughs) We wouldn't have, no, we wouldn't have other gods. We know what you've done for us. We're so grateful for you. We've got these entire storylines of the goodness of God and your faithfulness to us. We could start journaling now and we would never write down all of the good things. Who would want another God? Turns out a lot of people. In fact, it turns out that it's human nature. Even though we know what God has done for us, we still tend to look for other gods. Back in history... 20 years before the American Revolution. It's a 22-year-old pastor in England who was a nonconformist or a, um, uh, what's the other word they use? Um, a dissenter. These were pastors who felt like they didn't want to go along with the marriage of the Anglican church and the, priest, or the, the, uh, the king. And so they were dissenters or or nonconformist. I, I find it interesting, so if you've been with us for a while, almost every time I quote somebody of this era, they're all dissenters. They're all nonconformists. I guess I identify with them. I'm not sure. But in this case, he's 22 years old. His name is Robert Robison. And in 1758, he writes lyrics to a hymn that are about the epic, lifelong pursuit of God. And it includes these amazing passages like, Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. 
and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Pretty heady words for a 22-year-old. Some of you are like, what is an Ebenezer? Some of you are thinking it's something in a mug. You know, it's kind of like a drinking song. Here I raise my... No, that's not it. 1 Samuel 7.12, Samuel raises a memorial stone and he calls it an Ebenezer. It marks history in God. And the whole song talks about a man's life with God and it's an epic poem. It talks about his victory, not because he is so good, but because God is so good. And yet in this arc of this story, and I would encourage you to go read all the lyrics, tremendous self-awareness at 22 years old. Near the end, he writes a verse, and it's the only verse that has this little tag or bridge. I don't know what the exact term would be. But the lyrics go, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This huge arc of God being so faithful. And at the end he's still saying, you know what, I'm still kind of prone to wander. I'm still prone to wander off and not follow the God who's done all of these things. How do we go in the same song from here I raise my Ebenezer to prone to wander? Like, you just raised the Ebenezer. You just built a memorial stone to all that God has done for you, and you're still prone to wander. No matter what he has delivered us from, no matter what we've gone through, you and I, because fair is fair, are prone to wander. We're prone to look around for other gods. Now, we don't think of it so much in the way of idolatry. We kind of reserve that for the jungle tribes, don't we? Like, we, don't, we, don't, we would never be idolatrous people. That's <laughs> just foolish. We think of our own sin, but we don't think of replacing God with something else. Yet it is so sown into our nature that the New Testament spends significant amount of time talking about the idea of idolatry. Even in the age of grace, it visits this idea of idolatry over and over and over again. Let me give you a couple of New Testament truths about the Old Testament commandment warning us not to have other gods. Idolatry is a marker of your old life, not the one you're living now. Some of you came to Jesus as children. Some of you took the long route, right? A lot took place in your adult life before you got to where you are with the Lord. And when you did, God began to do a work in you in order that the old you and the new you were different. If you were a drunkard, the Lord began to work on that. If you were irresponsible, the Lord began to work on that. If you were a liar or a cheat, the Lord began to work on that. If you were unfaithful, the Lord began to work on that. Because you actually came to him in part because you didn't want to be those things, right? You're like, I'm tired of being a drunkard, a cheat, a liar. I don't want that kind of life for myself. I don't want my kids to know about somebody like that. I want to be different. So you came to him in order for those things to change. And he reoriented your life, not just your destination, but your life that you're living right now. If you are following him and you are in submission to him, you are a different person than you were. 
2 Corinthians calls it what? If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. And old things have passed away. The word creation there talks about nature. He doesn't just make you better. He makes you different. Now, to be fair, sometimes that takes a little while to manifest. Right? Kind of takes a little while to work out. But the point is, you are not what you were, and you are not yet fully what you're becoming. But what you are becoming is way different than what you were. When we were at the vineyard, we had a value of removing people right into service as quickly as we could, like into, into getting plugged in, getting work. And uh, it was great, but periodically that meant people who had not known the Lord very long ended up plugged, plugged into different roles. And uh, we learned them, you know, they, they would, uh, they were a little rough around the edges, and they would get up and they would testify that the Lord has completely changed me. And I remember our senior pastor going, like, not completely, like, why don't we say he is changing my life rather than he's completely changed me? But you know what? Him changing your life, even in process, you couldn't do that. You tried that before you came to him. You couldn't do it. And he is changing our life. If there is no change in your life, there is no regeneration. Yet there remains a memory of what we used to be, hopefully less and less evidence over time. So, Later, Peter talks about what that old life looked like, and he puts this idea of idolatry or serving other gods in the context of the New Testament in a list of a whole bunch of things that we would not want to be associated with. 1 Peter 4.3 For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You're like, well, that list started out kind of dark and got worse. And then you threw idolatry in at the end. Like, is that, we didn't even think that was an issue. We thought that was for other people. Idolatry is a marker of what you were, not who you are, and certainly not who you're becoming. But it is listed along with some of the most obvious testimony wreckers because it's one of those if we love God, we know what he did for us, and we don't want to do those things, including slip into idolatry. Now, all this talk of idolatry is still a little weird for most of you, because it's 2024, and we are refined. We are not an idolatrous people. That's so prehistoric, isn't it? The idea of worshiping idols. We're not going to go to our backyard tonight and build an Asherah pole, Right? You're not going to build some kind of totem in your backyard and suddenly, you know, the pastor's going to come over and go, oh, dang, you slipped into idolatry. It's not going to happen. In Jeremiah 44, the Jews encounter the Canaanites and the Canaanites worship this Asherah pole. By the time the word gets to Jeremiah... The people are full-on engaging in idol worship, not just tolerating it, but they're actually engaging in it. Now, I'm not really worried, even as a pastor, of any of you going home and doing this tonight. We don't worship the Asherah pole. That's so archaic, plus our homeowners association would be all over us. And it would be unbecoming to be out there worshiping idols. We would never lower ourselves to that. We lower ourselves to other things. We take the adoration that God deserves 
And then we commit it to other things, so we're so sucked dry by the time we come here, we have nothing. Now, here's the crazy part. In the Old Testament, the idol worship was really obvious. It was clear. That's an idol, and you're worshiping it. In our day, it's way more subtle. But there are all kinds of things that can go from a genuine concern to a modern-day idol in your life. And suddenly, it is getting all of the devotion and attention that the Lord deserves. And many of those things are absolutely harmless in themselves. For instance, everybody needs a house. You've got to have a place to live, right? A house is a box for your stuff. You've got to have a box for your stuff. But which house do you need? And I have nothing against a large or a beautiful house if you can afford it. I, oddly, we have a larger and more beautiful house than I ever thought we would ever have. But I have watched people make a God out of achieving a certain standard of living to the point that it takes all of their resources and all of their time and all of their energy, and at the end of the day, they're not working for a lifestyle. They're working for the possessions that make them look like they have that lifestyle. How is that somehow more prestigious or acceptable than Asherah pole? The same thing. And you're like, oh, that's not really houses for me. What about a specific car? What about a uh, Corvette Z06 torch red with black leather interior? Not that I've thought about it. <laughs> By the way, if you have a Corvette Z06 with torch red with a black leather, good for you. I don't care. I hope you can afford it. I'd like to arrive it. I'd like to borrow it. But as somebody who is not in a position, you know, nobody with seven kids at home really needs a Corvette. That can so easily slip into, and it just, it, because it sucks our time, even if we don't spend the money on it, we think about it in an inordinate amount. I'm not talking, you can even make an idol out of a position at work, and it, you want that role so much that it takes all of your energy, all, everything, you're focused on that. So I'm not talking about healthy ambition, I'm talking about being consumed with something. To the point that your walk with the Lord begins to suffer because every spare bit of energy goes into that. Some of you are thinking, well, Randy, the joke's on you. I live in a small house and I drive a hoopty. I get it. I drive a hoopty. Good for you. But that doesn't mean we're idle free. It isn't what we have. It's what possesses us. How many of you have inadvertently got those AARP packets? You may already be a member, you know. Idolatry is like the AARP. You may already be an idolater. Like, I didn't even know. Because you don't have to own these things to bend a knee to them. The Asherah poles in Jeremiah 44 actually belong to the Canaanites. The Jews just kind of jumped in. You can live without any of these things in your possession and you can still be subject to them. This is not an Old Testament problem. And the God who took us from where we were to where we are going is saying, I'm not going to share my affection for things with anybody. Paul teaches us. That's a part of your old life. It's not your new one. And then he tells us how the drive for idolatry comes to be. Your spirit, your inner man, is a production unit. 
It produces things. Those things radiate off of you in a way that you don't even comprehend. Those around you pick them up. They understand them. But there are two systems of production, if you will, in your spirit. Different ways that your spirit produces things. One involves fruit. Another one involves work. Paul writes about the fruit of the spirit, which are reproduced naturally in the life of a believer who is living wholeheartedly for the Lord. You expect to see apples from an apple tree, and you expect to see these fruit from a believer. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love the tagline he throws in there. He goes, against there, there is no law. Nobody's telling you you can't do those things. No wife ever complained about her husband being too long-suffering. How's it going? I don't know, he's just so patient. Like that, I've done a little counseling over the years, that one never happened. No husband ever complained about his wife having too much joy. No friend or coworker ever filed a grievance with HR because it was of goodness on display, okay? Those things, those fruits that come off us that we produce, nobody has a problem with those. Against those, there are no law. Everybody loves the fruit of the Spirit, even if they're not sure why that person is producing those. They're drawn to them. And he contrasts in this passage fruit, a metaphor for the positive, with what he says just before this, which he refers to as work, as the works of the flesh. Fruit comes from reproducing what you are as a child of God. When we walk with Jesus, love, peace, joy, all of those things just become a part of who we are. No one ever worked for a fruit of the Spirit. But there's this darker alternative that is based on the idea of working and getting what we work for. Just like he talks about the wages of sin being death, he refers to these things in the verses before, verses 19 and 20. The works of the flesh, what you work for and what you earn, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Idolatry, the idea of putting something on a pedestal higher than the Lord in your life is a fleshly work that is spoken of in the harshest of terms. He's saying, if you wrestle with idolatry, it's just like wrestling with these other things. That might sound a little fire and brimstone to you, but you do know that fire and brimstone are real. They were not Paul's hope for you, but this is his warning flag. He said, don't engage in these works, because that's where they lead you. Now, Paul was a big tent guy. He believed that there was room for everybody. He says, for all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And all can be justified freely by his grace through redemption. He's like, it's open to everybody, but once he lumps all of us together in what could be, he narrows it down a little bit, and he points out that, yeah, but if you manifest things like idolatry, you're actually, like, it's like sorcery. If you can't search an inventory of your life and say, what is an idol in my life? You're having lunch with the witches. He lumps it all together. Now, again, part of our problem is idolatry in our culture doesn't look the same. We, and so because it doesn't look the same, we think it's a different thing entirely. 
But some of the greatest idols of our time are things like leisure and expectation. Not rest. When I talk about leisure, I'm not talking about rest is godly. God rested. And we're going to talk about that. But leisure is the free time that has expanded over the years because of our lifestyle and what we're able to produce. And leisure in itself is not bad. However, what do you do with all that? What do you do with the excess hours you have? Some of you are going, I have no excess hours. I know you believe that. I believe it too. We're both wrong. And we engage in things that take time that at the end of the week, if we knew how much time we had invested, we would be horrified. Some of you have read um, uh, John Eldridge, some of his books. There's a, there's a book he's got, his story about uh, buying a backpack. Now, to a Coloradan, buying a backpack's a big deal. Okay? For some of us, we don't care. But for some of us, and so he got so consumed with finding the right backpack. And he did the research, and he looked on this, and he shopped here. And, he, and at, the, like, at the end of a two-week period, his wife mentions to him, do you realize how much time you spent looking for the right backpack? He goes, yeah, I've probably got a couple hours into this. She laughed at him. She said, actually, I've written it down. She goes, you got about 30 hours into research. She goes, I think you like looking for a backpack more than you like having a backpack. Where are you spending your time? What, what takes those spare moments you have? Not that, I'm not the guy that says every spare moment you have needs to spend with your nose in Scripture. There is a place for fun and there's a place for recreation. But wh where is most of your leisure time going? That is what we serve. The second part, the God of expectation. We have all come of age in a strange season of the world that has really never been replicated. We're, on, we're, in, we're in a weird space. That is, we are the descendants of multiple generations, each who have exceeded their previous generation's economic wealth. You don't know it's weird any more than a fish knows it's wet. Right? Because that's what we know. We all grew up, Billy Joel told us, every family's got a pretty good chance of doing better than their parents did. That, I totally mangled that line. I had it in my head. I could hear the music, and that's not how the line goes. But everybody had a pretty good shot of getting at least as good as their parents got. That's the lyric. But the point being, we just expect that we are economically going to be better off than our parents because it worked for them, and it worked for them, and it worked for them. And it might work for you, but you know what? Long term, this is completely unsustainable. Think about it. It can't work forever. Most of you probably live in a home much bigger than your parents did. So maybe your kids are going to have a bigger home than you did, and good for you for it. But five generations down, is everybody going to have a 14,000-foot home? You know, like, it's unsustainable. And yet we have this expectation, and we work to achieve this expectation, and all of our eggs are in that basket, and if those expectations aren't met, our Ashereth pole falls over, and we realize that everything we've poured our life into was fake. The Lord is looking for people who are willing to lay even their expectations of what life might look down to be faithful to him. Some of you have a call to missions and you wrestle because you know that 
if you're going to say yes to missions, some of these expectations are going to have to be set aside. And you have been raised in a culture that told you that was a birthright. Others of you are called to radical generosity and giving and giving and giving. But those things, the leisure and expectation, are the Asherah poles of our culture. And we are way closer to those things than we want to admit. I'm looking at the clock, trying to convince myself to skip the next point. I think it's the devil. Wait, get, all right, you, well, you, you're laughing now, but you don't know what it is. Okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. One more, this is, this is a more current thing than leisure and expectation, both which wear us out, okay? And I stole this phrase from my daughter-in-law last night. It is the God of political allegiance. Buckle up. Whatever your political convictions are, whatever they are, if they are so strong that they are somehow able to override your biblical convictions, nice pull you got there. Now, some of you instantly, now, in, up goes the barricades, <laughs> okay? Randy, you think you're going to find a perfect candidate? No, every last one of them is human. Until I can vote for Jesus, I'm making concessions every stinking time. I am holding my, no, my nose and pulling the lever like the rest of you. But I will not pretend that my guy is perfect. That's idolatry. And we have watched the church on both wings talk about their guy like he was Jesus returned to earth. And I will say for those whom I have been politically aligned with, I am embarrassed of that. We have sold out our devotion to the Lord to make excuses for a human being, either on the right or the left. I hope you feel the balance in what I'm saying. And I hope you feel a little targeted. I'm, I'm good with both of those. But it's probably the going into an election cycle, and elections matter. There are consequences to elections. But let's not make an idol out of a candidate. Let's admit they are what they are even if you pull the lever for that person. I am, I've been voting for a while. I'll be honest, I don't remember ever voting for a candidate. I've voted against a candidate every time. I'm serious. I've got, hold my nose and vote, all right? This, I, know what, I know what this person is, but I'm not going to pretend that that person is more than they show us they are. Y'all were happier with Corvette. I, this is a huge deal. And I'm telling you, those of, of my generation, we don't get it. The younger generation is seeing through it. And they have a lot to say about this. And the best thing we could do is listen more than we talk. Because they have watched our generation accept things from political leaders and still put God's stamp of approval on them. 
And they're stepping in the back going, baloney. We've got to learn. And I, I, want to vote for what is, I want to vote for the candidate that is right, but I don't want to pretend that they are anything different than they are. So, I, hear me, I'm not making a political point, I'm making a heart point. That's what I really want to address. We have here a church... If you, if you go to the, the root of the word, you have, we have an ecclesia, a, a, a ruling body in the spirit. I don't want to surrender our authority as leaders by getting into bed with a specific political party that abuses us and then convinces us we liked it. The New Testament is clear. There are certain things you've got to intentionally run from, and the one thing it mentions is idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If something is dangerous, you're smart enough. You don't poke it. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Robin saw a bobcat in the parking lot across the street, and I told everybody, buddy system, get a buddy who's slower than you are. <laughs> Had four people ask me to be their buddy, by the way. <laughs> but we know we're smart enough not to poke to go over there, let's go find it, you know, and poke it. No, 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 we flee from that. He is saying, even in the New Testament reality, flee from idolatry. Get as far from it as you can. Finally, and this, I guess after the political thing, this won't sound harsh at all. Create space between you and people who do not take this seriously. You can't afford to be buddied up with people who are dancing with an Asherah pole in their backyard. Like, it's dangerous. You get sucked into the dance really quick. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. He said, don't, is that harsh? Well, it's important. He's talking about believers. He's not talking about unbelievers. There's your unbelieving neighbor who's got the pole in his backyard. He doesn't know any better. Befriend him. Love that guy. But if there's somebody that's claiming the name of Jesus, that you're looking at, you're like, they're in a, it's dangerous. Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. He's not playing. Stand with me if you would. just want to take a moment and pray. I know we're up against the clock and I want to be respectful of our kids' work if we're fine. But Father, right now we come before you and we ask that you would reveal to us the Asherah poles in our own lives. The things that suck the time and the energy that get our vote. We are not a highly evolved species. We are not different than your chosen people. So we ask that you would reveal to us the areas of our life where we have given entirely too much authority. We thank you that you are God in heaven. 
that you delivered us and you are changing our lives. So now we bring our own lives into alignment with what you want to do. We will have no other gods before you. We will have no other gods before you. And we will live in joy, producing the fruit of the Spirit all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great afternoon.